Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. How far away are we from employers mandating that employees be vaccinated? Airlines saying, you want to fly with us, we're going to need proof. I think many businesses are going to say, you want to come to work, you got to show uh, proof of vaccination. Dollar General said on Wednesday it won't require the vaccine for its employees, but it will pay them the equivalent of four hours wages to get the vaccine. There's been a lot of talk lately about how employers and the government can help increase the number of people who get the COVID-19 vaccines. The reason this is so important is that suppressing the spread of the virus is going to require vaccinating a significant portion of the U.S. population. They say between 70 to 85 percent of all Americans. It's a moving target, dependent on how contagious the virus is at any given point. But what happens if we fall short of that number? What options do we really have if not enough Americans voluntarily get the vaccine? On today's episode, we're going to look at a controversial proposal that's been floated, mandating the vaccines. Can the United States require people to get this vaccine? And would that be a good idea? I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. My mentors told me at the beginning of the pandemic that as the state of the world goes down, the need for bioethics goes up, and certainly the last year has been proof of that. That's Professor Emily Largent. She's an assistant professor of medical ethics and health policy at the University of Pennsylvania. And she's also an assistant professor of law. I think just as much as my personal life has been affected by the pandemic, my professional life has really focused on COVID-19 and thinking about various ethical implications, of which there have been many. Including, most recently, vaccine mandates. So I asked her, the big question at the center of this debate, can the government require adults to get vaccinated? So the short answer is yes. I think that ethically, it's more complicated than that. But legally, at least, we do have good reason to think that the government can require us to be vaccinated. And that goes all the way back to a 1905 Supreme Court case called Jacobson versus Massachusetts. In that case, there was a man, Henning Jacobson, and he really did not want to be vaccinated against smallpox, which was being required by Cambridge, Massachusetts because of widespread cases. Um, So he was fined $5, which is about $100 today. And because he was so upset about this, he took the case all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court came out very forcefully saying that there are times when there is a reasonable use of the state's police power to require us to get vaccines for public health reasons in some cases. And so that still remains good law. And we know the government can require us to be vaccinated. So you you would be fined if you don't get vaccinated in those situations. Does that sound ethical to you? Because I guess people could just sort of pay the fine, right? Is that not correct? Yeah. So I think the important thing when we talk about mandates is to be clear, it's not about holding somebody down 
and plunging the needle into their arm. It's about creating a system where there are penalties or consequences for going unvaccinated. And we have to think about what fair and proportionate penalties are. So there are some countries where you might actually be imprisoned if you don't get your child vaccinated. And that, I think, is wildly inappropriate. But it might be the case that it's appropriate to say that You'll need to be quarantined for some period of time to make sure that you're not sick. It might be appropriate to say that you won't have access to school until you're vaccinated. It might be appropriate to have a small fine, but imprisonment would be much too punitive. These vaccines that we're talking about so far uh, have all become available under emergency use authorization. So they're not fully approved. Emergency use authorization is good. It means that the the benefits outweigh the risks uh, in this in this situation. But how does that impact the potential ability to mandate the vaccine? So this is where it becomes a legally murky area, especially with respect to employers mandating vaccination. That's an issue that's drawn a lot of attention because there have been some employers who want to go forward and require employees to get vaccinated. We've seen this with certain chains of long-term care facilities, for example. They've just told employees, you get the vaccine or you stop coming to work. And people have gone back and forth on whether or not that's appropriate because of exactly as you say, this emergency use authorization. So some people say we can't mandate things that aren't FDA approved. And for them, that's very clear. But there is guidance from the EEOC to say that employers can mandate vaccination that doesn't draw a distinction between FDA approval and EUAs. And so there's another group of legal Hmm. scholars that has said, actually, this is fine to go ahead and mandate vaccines at this point. So we don't know yet how this will work through the system, but I would say it's an ambiguous situation that we aren't sure yet. Where do religious or or personal belief exemptions sort of lie here? I mean, we're sort of navigating this for the first time with these COVID vaccines, but with childhood vaccines, these issues have come up, you know, state by state. How are they typically treated? So not all states offer religious or philosophical exemptions. And it's been found that once you get rid of some of these exemptions, that vaccine rates go up. And that is a good thing if we want to achieve herd immunity. So you know, obviously, there are a lot of partisan divides about COVID vaccination. And I think that offering religious exemptions might make them more appealing to people who have beliefs on those grounds, but they don't have to offer them. But when we think about offering exemptions more broadly, typically you have to make sure you conform with the requirements of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And sometimes you need to comply with a medical exemption. So if it's not safe for you to be vaccinated, you have a reason not to be vaccinated. I, I'm just curious, do you, do you think as a philosophy that mandates could be a good idea? So I do think that mandates can be a good idea down the road, depending on how things play out, if the pandemic continues to be uncontrolled and if we don't see adequate voluntary uptake of vaccines. But in order for that to be an ethical and sound endpoint for us to reach, we need to make sure that we're checking a lot of boxes before there. So I don't think that that's something we should be thinking about right now so much as we should be thinking about making sure that we have adequate supply of vaccine for everybody who wants and needs one. And only once we've really gone through this period where we've tried very hard to improve voluntary uptake should we then start to think about mandates being necessary and appropriate? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I agree with you that, that that's still a little bit off in the future, although things are happening pretty quickly. I mean, you know, they do say by May 1st that uh, eligibility should be wide open in most of the country. And I guess there's this persistent concern that if you're still hovering around, you know, a third of the country being vaccine hesitant, uh, do we have a hard time getting to the point where we have that community immunity that everyone talks about? 
Do you find that there's a difference between mandating vaccines for adults versus children? I think teenagers and children just continue to be a really challenging part of all of this. So we don't have vaccines that have any emergency use authorization for people younger than 16. But in surveys that I've done with colleagues, we've actually found that there is a slightly higher rate of acceptance for childhood mandates, even in the context of COVID. People seem to be more accepting of the idea that we would mandate COVID vaccines for their kids, which is an interesting finding. They're more resistant to them for themselves. But I think some of it really is the familiarity that we have with making sure that our kids are vaccinated so that we can enroll them in daycare and in Mm. primary school. And as they head off to college, you're also thinking about vaccines for teenagers. So, you know, we're going to have to confront the question of COVID mandates for children because, you know, kids make up about 25% of the population. And if we're going to get to 75% or more people who are vaccinated, that's going to require that kids be part of that number. We can't do it otherwise. The other way to to try and get people vaccinated instead of the stick, the carrot. Or the or the donut. Yeah. Or the donut, right. Yes, exactly. Krispy Kreme just announced that they are getting involved in public health campaigning and that people who bring in a vaccination card will be eligible for free donuts. So it's a, a sweeter version than the carrot, I suppose. So what, what about that, though? The idea that people are exploring these ways, uh, including proposals to pay them. I've heard about this from some of the uh, teachers in the Atlanta public schools here where I am. What do, what do you think about that? People have talked about paying 1000 or even $1,500 to try to get people to be vaccinated. So I do have some concerns about that. We know that from behavioral economics, if you offer money to people, that it can actually sort of signal risk. Hmm. So if somebody's already worried about taking the vaccine and then you offer them $1,500, it feels a little too good to be true. And they can actually start to feel like this is something risky that you're asking them to do. So we might entrench mistrust rather than addressing it. Hmm. It's also the case that in some instances, when you offer to pay people, they might feel that they have no alternative but to take the money. So this is especially a concern I have when governments are offering the money, because we know that people have basic needs that aren't being met through our social safety net. Families are in hard times, and it can give the appearance of impropriety to condition money that we know people need and that the government has not routinely provided for the past year on doing something that they are hesitant to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think sort of, you know, breaking it down into this, the uh, socioeconomic divides, I think, is is always con- of, of concern. I mean, it comes up with with organ donation, with other types of, you know, medical procedures and things like that. But there's been these other examples. Dollar General Corporation, I think, offering employees who get vaccinated four hours of pay. The city of Phoenix offering employees like firefighters and police officers $75 when they show proof of both doses of a vaccine. Same same concerns there? I think that we can think about payment serving a variety of functions. So payment might reimburse people. I think that's great. So if somebody needs to have time off for work or they need to take a cab, then we should reimburse so that people aren't paying out of pocket to get vaccines, especially for people who are hourly workers who might see this as a real trade-off between taking time off of work to be safe and get a vaccine versus getting the important wage. That's that's really important that we do that. And again, also paying for time off to recover from any side effects that you might experience. It's these large payments, and it's it's hard, you know, in ethics, I can't necessarily say, well, more than $500, but it's big payments that we might start to worry about in this context. So where do you think we're going to be? 
come fall when kids are going back to school, where do you think we'll be with regard to vaccine uh, overall, uh, the acceptance, the potential mandates? And where do you think the nation will stand? So I think the more experience that we accrue where people see their friends and neighbors being vaccinated, that rates will continue to increase. I think that we'll have a general loosening and availability too, which should also make people like me who are eagerly waiting but not yet eligible, you know, that'll continue to boost the numbers as we have more vaccine doses. And then we are going to have to start making hard decisions once we figure out where the numbers have roughly settled out, short of herd immunity, I think, how we're going to make up that difference. It's been a tension throughout the pandemic between sort of pursuing economic goals and protecting public health. I'm not sure they had to be intention, but they've been set up that way. And vaccines are a nice way to sort of bring things back together. As Professor Largent said, it's important that we wait to see how many people voluntarily get a COVID-19 vaccine before we even consider adopting employer or state mandates. In many states, younger adults without pre-existing conditions or frontline jobs are still not eligible for the vaccine. So we've got a ways to go before we'll have a clear sense of what kind of mandates or incentives are going to be necessary to get us to herd immunity. In the meantime, I have to tell you, one of the best ways to encourage hesitant family and friends to get the vaccine is to share your experience if you've been lucky enough to get one. As Professor Largent said, the more people see those who they know and trust getting the vaccine, the more likely they'll be to get it themselves. If you have questions, please record them as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might even include them on the next podcast. We'll be back Monday. Thanks for listening. Coronavirus Fact versus Fiction is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is executive producer. Zoe Saunders is the senior producer. Raj Makija is the senior manager of production operations. This week's episodes were produced by Rachel Cohn, Emily Liu, Aaron Mathewson, Madeline Thompson, Nathan Miller, Jordan Gaspure, and Zachary St. Louis. Our medical writer is Andrea Kane. Tommy Bazarian is our engineer. And David Toledo is the team's production assistant. Special thanks to Ben Tinker and Amanda Seeley of CNN Health, as well as Felicia Patinkin, Ashley Lusk, Courtney Coop, and Daniel Cantor from CNN Audio. This is Raj's last week on the show, and I think I speak for all of us when I say we'll miss him. Good luck, Raj. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.